Introduction. In the spring of 1984, I began to write a novel that was not initially called The Handmaid's Tale. I wrote in longhand, mostly on yellow legal notepads, then transcribed my almost illegible scrawlings using a huge German keyboard manual typewriter that I had rented. The keyboard was German because I was living in West Berlin. I'm Shane, and this is The Writer's Apprentice, a podcast where we learn by reading the works of smart authors. I don't have a good memory, which might become a problem as I try to tell stories in these episodes, but I do remember the time Jay snatched someone's still pristine copy of Order of the Phoenix from their desk. Like most people, I carried my copy around between classes so I could jump back into it as soon as the bell rang and the opportunity arose. It wasn't unusual for people to have their copies waiting for them on their desks where they could sneak in a few paragraphs whilst the teacher's back was turned. Learning history is important, and it's a subject we'll get onto in just a moment, but 13-year-olds do not realise this, and only the best teachers can inspire them to care about it. We never had that kind of teacher, and so it was often a free-for-all, their teacher desperate to keep us calm. In this particular history class, Jay grabbed a copy from someone's desk, I think it was N, and flicked to what felt like a random page maybe two-thirds of the way in. In the time between lunging for the book and being scolded by the teacher, he'd managed to grasp enough of a paragraph to throw out a bomb that deflated a dozen hearts in one sentence. Sirius is dead, he yelled across the classroom. Looking back, I like to think that he had already gotten to that part of the book. He stayed up late last night by the light of the moon to read it, afraid his parents would find him and order him to bed if they knew he was still awake. He got to that part of the story before any of us and was heartbroken. The heartbreak carried on until first period history class, where he couldn't hold the grief anymore. He needed others to follow with him, their reading speeds be damned. Back then, of course, I just thought he was a bit of a twat. It turned out not to matter to me, the scene still landed exactly how the author intended. The memories burnt into my brain by the trauma that came along with it. I remember lying on my slowly deflating airbed, reaching the battle of the ministry and bawling my eyes out. Knowing it was coming, maybe even added to the catharsis, and it remains one of the best chapters of any book I've read since. This phenomena is objectively true too. Alongside the memory is a BBC article which describes a study where people are given, I think, a copy of that same book. Half the guinea pigs were told the end of the book, and the other half weren't. Those that were spoiled markedly enjoyed the book more. The hypothesis is that you can spend more time in the world of the story if you're not trying to decipher what's happening. If you know where it's leading, you can just enjoy the journey. And maybe that's why I'm not as frustrated as I should be when Miss Atwood spoils her whole damn book in the introduction. I don't live under a rock, I know the premise of the book. But blimey, she goes about explaining the meaning of the end scene in the book. This has a slight air of being so proud of the work that she wants to talk about it over and over again, before you can even actually read it. It's so smart it feels like she's yelling decades after writing it. And that's totally fine. I've written stories and come back to them after months or years and read them thinking, this, this is smart, this is really good. There's no need to blow your whole load before you even get to inches of numbered pages. You got me into a tangent now, but this is a trait that Atwood continues throughout the book, spoiling her own story to show how clever she is. What the introduction does do is provide a deserved amount of context. 
I love that I'm going into this book knowing the threads that made up the author's life. The reason I'm picking up Handmaid's Tale is because I'm working through Atwood's masterclass. In it, she talks about the need for having an audience with shared experiences in order for your ideas, environments, and characters to land properly. You need readers to be in on the joke with you, she said. To take that a bit further, there's the old joke, an English and Irishman and Scotsman walk into a bar, which might have been a standard setup for a joke two decades ago. But these days, you're more likely to trigger an involuntary wrinkling of the nose as the audience braces for racism. Nonetheless, start a joke like this with a 50-year-old, and they may well laugh the same way they did when they were 20. The context is important, and without it, a joke or a story isn't always taken the way it's intended. Atwood is a Canadian, born in 1939, so her childhood was steeped in the leftovers of the Great War, and her earliest memories are of the Second World War. When she began writing Handmaid's Tale decades later, she found herself in a much more subtle battlefield. Whilst living in eastern Germany, one half of a torn country, the Cold War has had its share of violent outrages. But just as harmful was the suspicion of everyone who you passed by in the street. There's a simmering tension that comes along with questioning if you're being followed, spied upon, or targeted daily. And Atwood, being a Canadian, was almost certainly under more scrutiny than most. Whilst the Serenity countries would have had suffrage before she was born, step a few hundred miles to the east, and that wasn't the case. She'd be in her late thirties by the time many African and Asian nations would give women equal representation. Writing this book, she likely remembered reading news stories as those events took place, and the conditions for women before they did. So it's hardly surprising that she goes on to write a dystopian novel focusing on the rights of women and their control over their own bodies. Atwood makes it clear that the reason for this context isn't just setting the scene. These things have happened before, they're genuinely real. Any resemblance to events happening today isn't just coincidence, it's likely not even the first time these events have happened. It's just a sign that humanity failed to pay attention to its own history. With this book, Atwood is attempting to inspire us to pay attention to our history, picking up where our teachers may have failed. Anne Lamott is one of the many authors whose tenets include tell the truth. Here, Margaret Atwood does nothing but tell the truth. I'm aware that Lamott is referring to an abstract human truth, a real emotional situation that can be emphasised with, but of course it applies to historic occurrences too. The country of Gilead might be an extreme which tends towards the impossible, but through the context we're given in the introduction to this book, you can see there is truth to each one of those perverse rituals in this society. Set in this context, fills us in on the joke so we can take part in the horror not as a fantasy world, but in a world that existed long enough ago, or in a distant enough corner, that we no longer fear it could happen again. I think that's the reason for the introduction in this book. There are other reasons an author might want to supply a prefacing chapter of context though. I've seen a lot of Looney Tunes, and it was a key part of my after school unwinding. Those episodes stretch from all over a century, and many of those jokes, just like the walked into a bar jokes, play on stereotypes which lingered with humanity for far too long. In fact, Looney Tunes might have been the 101 class for where we learn our national stereotypes as children, with our parents laughing alongside us. Okay, I can imagine a child saying, I guess that's just what we call Chinese people. 
The context that we're given in one of the DVD re-releases of Looney Tunes comes from Whoopi Goldberg, right before you can watch any of the cartoons. She tells us that these were a product of their time, awful then as they are now, but to remove them would be to lie about our past. Right now, I have no opinion on if showing the unedited cartoons is the right move or not. I doubt anyone's buying the DVDs for their children anyway. They must be mementos for adults seeking out nostalgia. In that case, then why not give them what they saw as children? But if the intended audience is still children, why not edit it? We can give the originals to the Smithsonian to preserve their cultural heritage and clean away the racism from the new prints of the DVD in exactly the same way that they'll clean up the audio and illustrations in the high-definition versions. This kind of context feels more like an excuse. If I were to write a book for the next generation and make an introduction like this, what bits of my background would I need to share? I'm talking about the late 90s and early 2000s here. Well, I guess most of the 2000s. There was the Iraq war, of course, but war isn't the same as it was in the early part of the last century. If I didn't look at a TV station or a newspaper, it could have passed me by without affecting me at all. If I'm honest, I still couldn't tell you at what point we switched from war with Iraq to war with Iran. If that even happened, it's entirely possible that I mixed the two up during my teenage years and have never bothered to correct it. Hello there, Shane here from a particularly echoey room. Uh, I do want to jump in though, just to say that I am an idiot. I didn't want to look this up whilst I was writing it, but it does turn out that we have not been at war with Iran for a very long time. In fact, they're a good ally. My hope was that I would be making a point um, by not knowing the, the difference or the when we were at war with one or the other, but actually it made me sound like an idiot. So I've slid this in, just so you know that I have looked it up. I've corrected that incompetence and um, enjoy the rest of the thing. Sorry for interrupting. I'll let you go back to it. Sorry. War just never affected me. It was never in my background. Terrorism certainly managed to permeate a lot of that time, though. The troubles continued during the 90s, but that barely came across my attention either. Until I just looked it up, I figured that that had all died down before I was born, but somehow I missed at least 20 IRA attacks, which I should well have known about by that age, ranging up to 2001. There was another terrorist attack which did impact the way I viewed the world though, and it brought us into a whole new era of terrorism. The television usually lived in the small cupboard that adjoined my school's two music rooms, but on that particular day, it had been pulled out. As far as I remember, I didn't even have a music lesson on Tuesday, so I have no idea what made me go into that room around lunchtime. It could have been the growing crowd there. A teacher, whose name entirely escapes me, was standing with his back to us, watching the news as pictures of the first plane hit one of the towers in New York. But doesn't that mean someone would have died themselves? You know, when they hit the building, someone asked. That hadn't occurred to me, and the realisation was chilling. I ran through the list of things that I was so angry about that I would die to make people listen. The list was short and not worth such extreme measures. These guys must have had a very long list though. Now, I can't imagine a time in an airport where I didn't have to go through a metal detector unsure about where to put my arms and legs, wondering if I was going to be selected to have to take my shoes off. To someone slightly older than me though, I bet it's still a grim novelty. The internet probably brought about the greatest change from my generation to the one before that. There was the internet before I was old enough to use it, of course, but not nearly at the same level as utilisation. 
Below 1 megabit down was a speed I only suffered for a short time. Fibre came quickly after my first computer. Access to information was unimaginably different then compared to just 3 or 4 years before. It changed everything and the world struggled to keep up. This may well be the golden age of the internet. The internet of today is different from then. I can imagine a world not long from now where the internet is different again, hindered so much by monopolistic corporate interest and eroding government censorship, leaving only a few handful services left. Maybe that's my context? It doesn't feel as compelling as dictatorships, war and the downfall of entire countries, but I can already think of a few stories that would grow out of how the world was reshaped in the 90s. There'd be a kind of truth I'd be chasing by plucking from my formative zeitgeist that only my millennial peers would relate to. Maybe a context chapter would be needed there for those youths who know nothing about the fight for the phone line. I've not read any more of the book yet, so I can only really talk about the concept of an introduction which brings the reader in on the joke. I've talked about why you might need to do it, but I'd still like to raise the idea that maybe it's a bit of a cheat. I wonder if it's a failing of the story, that it can't build the world within its pages, but instead needs a spoiler-riddled fourth wall break from the author herself to step in before the following chapters make sense. Hey, you made it to the end. Well done. Thank you very much for sticking with it. Um, you can go now if you want to, but first of all, I could tell you a little bit more about what I'm planning to do with the show. Uh, my aim here is really to go chapter by chapter through The Handmaid's Tale and try to find places where I can learn lessons from. How has Margaret Howard written something which I like or don't like? And how can I find that being reflected in other books or other areas of my life? You will note that it's not entirely about that. Um, this isn't 100% a writing podcast. There's a lot of reflections of stories from my life and um, a bit of a memoir really it isn't a memoir I'm not going for that but um, there are certainly going to be some stories which wrap around things um, parts of the book which remind me of lessons that I've learned in life and how I can apply them to literature and writing we'll see in the next episode that I was a bit surprised by the number of chapters and so I'm actually just going by the um the big title chapters, so there's around 15 of them. So I'm expecting to write 15 episodes of this. Um, they're mostly all written at the moment, actually. I just need to record them, and I'll be releasing them every week or so. Uh, this is the first time I've made any audio production. You can definitely tell. But it's going well. Um, there's a lot to learn, so this may be the roughest of the episodes. If you have any feedback, find where you can tweet at me. You can find me over on Twitter at Seamus, S-H-A-M-E-S-S, and let me know what I can do to fix it or improve it or whatever. I also want to finish off by mentioning a sort of another inspiration for this piece of work, this podcast that I'm doing, and that would be um, Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. This is another podcast where they go through chapter by chapter looking at the Harry Potter books, uh, and each week they pick a topic usually like a philosophical topic or trying to understand the the chapter from a different perspective. So was Aunt Petunia really given everything she deserves there and uh, is she really a dreadful person? And they go into like a deep dive across the series uh, on questions like that and try to understand uh, a little bit deeper what's happening in those books, which I am adoring at the moment. 
And I kind of want to do something similar with this book um, and see what lessons I can pull out of it. So I do hope you're enjoying it. There'll be another episode within the next week, I hope. I uh, will see you then.